Hey, everybody. How are you doing today? This is Adam Beckstead with Welkin Equity. I am a real estate investor from Indiana. If you're looking to learn about real estate investing, listen to my good friend Sam Newell's podcast, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. I appreciate you being on here. I'm excited to hear what you have to say, but you've, you've done a lot of cool stuff in the last year, raising money, working on deals, but you know, you did, you had an auto body shop before that. As far as I know, you've been investing for quite a while, but tell me about like 15 year old high school, Adam, were you thinking about being a massive syndicator and were you thinking about owning an auto body shop? Were you thinking about having passive income through real estate or what were you thinking about? I was not thinking about real estate. You know, I grew up in real estate. We, when I was younger, we would flip houses. We'd do live-in flips. And, you know, my my parents were fixing flippers. I, I mean, they they did that throughout their younger career on top of owning a business. And, you know, we would do that on the weekends and stuff. So it was awesome that I grew up around it, but I never had the yearning when I was younger to be like, oh, well, this is what I want to do. Because even though my parents taught me to be in it, mm-hmm. we never really sat down and said, well, here's the financials and here's why we do it. You know, it was just something that we did. Mm-hmm. So, and that's something that I really want to kind of change for my kids and kind of show them, hey, this is why I do this. And if I can do it and structure it like this, I don't have to have this W-2 job. Right. So I, I'm hoping that I can maybe lay a few more blocks down for my kids so that they can put the connections together. But actually out of school, we started a truck accessory business on top of our auto body business that we had. So I essentially right from school, I was an entrepreneur starting this business, you know, from, from accounting to installing truck accessories Wow! and slowly (laughs) transitioned from that into the auto body industry. And we, I mean, we just saw the writing on the wall, a lot of online shopping going on. And that industry has really kind of been wrecked from online shopping. Uh, You know, I think a lot of industries are like that. Even myself, I find myself in stores. Oh, I'm going to see how much I can get that on Amazon for. It'll be shipped right to my house in two days for free. So, you know, that's, that's what I started in. And I've been lucky to be around parents that have been investors and slowly but surely it was pounded into me. And over the years of working in the businesses, you know, I kept telling myself, Hey, I'm going to get into real estate. And I tried a couple of flips. I didn't enjoy flips. They were another job. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but it finally, you know, got hit into my head enough times that when we got an offer to sell the business, as I was trying to expand the business because it was doing so well for us, I really, I, I didn't just say no. I took some time, talked to my wife, 
you know, talked about the pros and the cons mentally and for like family life. It was a, uh, Hey, let's do this. And then I ran the numbers and it was a no brainer The the scalability of real estate is unreal compared to a business. I think you could square from ground floor to a couple million dollars, maybe quicker in a business if you were, if you hit it just right. And I, I think that you could do that. But once you get past that point, it's really hard to, you know, very few people are successful in taking that maybe two, $3 million business and taking it to a $30 million business. And in real estate, you, you kind of put up these processes and you work with your team and you really, it, it's a, an, it's an escalation scale. You know, it just keeps building on top of these, on top of each other. And there's no, there's no limit. So yeah. you just keep building in this real estate. And, you know, when I was running the numbers, even myself, I wasn't running numbers to truly how you could scale this business. And it was still a no brainer. So, I mean, that's really what got me um, kicked into real estate full time. Cool. That's awesome. And yeah, it's, I love that you, you kind of realized you didn't like flipping. Maybe I'm a slow learner because it took us a bunch of flips. I don't know. I mean, I've made a lot of money on flips. And so that's why I keep doing them. I've only done like one or a year, one every two years, but my wife and I (laughs) pacted with each other. I mean, full on packed promise, no more flips ever. We'll never do another flip. But did you pinky swear? We did. Oh man, you can't back out of that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we have to go for the scalability, but you know, and, and I think that's where a lot of people got caught in the downturn. You know, the, this podcast is about recession-proof real estate investing. And I love that you you learned that early on as you wanted to scale. And, and it's probably because you're a business owner, entrepreneur, you realize the importance of that. Importance of that. But where were you in the crash? I'm curious. I was safely in, in the automotive industry. Okay. Uh, honestly, it didn't affect us all that much, which um, was great for that industry. What what affects the automotive industry a lot is gas. So as gas prices rise up, uh, our business will contract. Mm-hmm. So, but we didn't see too much in the 0708. So I didn't feel, uh, you know, I didn't have that feeling that a lot of entrepreneurs did. Even a lot of people with W2 jobs that lost their jobs or it was just tougher for them. Luckily, we didn't have to um, deal too much with the 0708 crash. Well, that's nice. And did you own real estate during that time? I did not. My parents did, and I helped uh, manage some of that. And it, I mean, it was good. They're into like triple net commercial type of real estate. Okay. And just had successful businesses in the real estate. So there was no issue there. Nice. Okay. So when did you buy your first rental? My first rental would have been 2016, early 2016, actually. So not too long ago. Yeah, you've been in it kind of the last few years. Interesting. What'd you buy? Yeah, so I started with a single family home. A lot of people start with single family homes. Yeah. You know, selling my business. I know I wanted to get in real estate, but both you and I know there's multiple different ways to get into real estate. So we just wanted to find deals and it didn't matter whether it was single family, multifamily or office space. I didn't want to start getting into the commercial space, triple net stuff like my parents quite yet. Still kind of scares me a little bit. I don't just, I don't understand it well enough. Yeah. And I feel like I need, it's an animal that you need to respect and 
Yeah. You really need to research it, I guess, and become proficient at it. Absolutely. But anyway, you know, single family, all that stuff. I just wanted to find deals. So we ended up buying single family, small multifamily and office space because we wanted to see what we liked. You know, we want, we knew we were transitioning to real estate and we just wanted to know what we liked and what we didn't like. I mean, more so what we didn't like than what we liked. And we really loved our small multifamily properties. A lot of, I've heard many people say that they don't like it. They think they get worse tenants with multifamily. I, I find I get the same tenants, whether it's single family or multifamily. Yeah. Kind of depends on what you buy, right? Absolutely. I think that it depends what you buy and where you buy it and then how you screen your tenants. So I, I mean, I don't really, I don't really live by that rule. Kind so of depends on how you manage it. And I agree. I mean, if you do a good job screening tenants, but also advertising well, making the units look nice, you can have a C-class property, but you can have some great tenants. And I kind of have the um, problem of over fixing stuff. So I'm sure many of my tenants are like, wow, this is awesome. You know, all the comps don't have, you know, aren't this nice. So yeah. I'm slowly starting to pull that back, but I don't know. I I get the feeling I, you know, I watch you online. I, when we talk and stuff and I see your videos, I get the feeling you're kind of like me where it's kind of like, oh, well, these faucets only $20 more and it's mm-hmm. that much nicer. I'm going to do that. And then you do that like 200 times during your renovation. Yeah. <laughs> you end up spending a couple thousand more. So yeah, uh, that's something that I know I need to pull back on and set my budget from the beginning and just be better at it. We're kind of in between that for our personal flips. When it's a single family home, we go nuts. You know, we know that if we get multiple offers, we're going to make an extra ten to fifteen thousand dollars. And right. those little things like you're talking about, the the extra faucet, the extra X, Y, and Z that makes it look so much better. Makes it look look look, look like Pinterest exploded onto the onto the property. That gets you multiple offers. So on the real estate agent side, yeah, I I go nuts. I tell my clients to go nuts. You don't have to spend a ton of money, but you do spend an extra couple thousand, and it pays off. On yeah. the rental side, I have a very specific tenant base that I want to target. I want to target people that. Maybe they don't need luxury, but they want it to be nice. It's my rentals don't smell. They're clean when people see them. I have backsplashes and granite countertops. And I'm targeting not high-end white collar, but white collar and high-end blue collar. And that's the tenant base I like. You know, I have people in there with 720, 740 credit scores or people paying six months in advance, six months rent up front. So you know, I, I think it's not a terrible idea to upgrade the units. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't spend a crazy amount, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think I, I don't want to be the slumlord and it sounds like you don't want to either. No, absolutely not. And I 100% agree. You know, I do those little addition, pay a little bit more for, for faucets, for some fixtures, maybe even flooring, because I know that that will attract the tenants that I want. Uh, yeah. yeah, I could obviously pay less and get a lower clientele, but I'm playing that um, in between and the deals that I've come across, I've been able to afford that stuff and um, make a very good um, profit off of, you know, adding that stuff. You know, I I pick, same thing. I pick, I pick all of the upgrades based on who I'm targeting and I pick the location. I think that's huge, but tell me what maybe you haven't liked about the single family homes or 
or whatever the opposite, whatever, whatever it is you've invested in, you haven't liked. Cause I think there's a lot of okay. people just like you who want to invest. There's so many options out there. So what, what did yeah. you not like? Okay. So let me just touch base on the fix and flips. I was not good at fix and flips because I did not give it the respect that it deserved. And no matter what you do, give it respect and understand that you're going to have to do some research. You know, I went into it um, not doing my research and trusting people and just saying, oh, yeah, this is what you could sell it for. This is what you can buy it for. Here's the renovations. And yep. I just kind of looked at, oh, okay. And and it wasn't. And, and then you put into my thing where, oh, I want to add this little bit. I want to add this little bit. And then you like the HGTV thing, you know, you pull up a floorboard and you're like, oh, these joists are going to have to be replaced. You know, the typical yep. thing. So no matter what area you want to go, you got to give it respect. So fix and flips. I, I, I know, I know you can make a killing. I mean, you're, you're proof of that. It just wasn't for me. And, and I, and I can fully understand that as far as office space, office space, trying to find people into that is, and, and I've done it's small office space. Uh-huh. And it is a different breed trying to find people to rent small office space. Mm-hmm. We talk to a ton of people. We screen a bunch of people and they just don't commit. Yep. And, and I think it's um, a nature of a small office space because I think it's the, the in-between someone working at home or someone working in a really nice professional. You know, it's that stepping stone. And I think a lot of people get really scared by that. And it creates some issue. And we just found that compared to a place to live, it's so much harder to find a good tenant. Yeah. So I, I, that's why we don't want to continue on with office space. I'm actually selling off one of my offices right now. Single family home. You know, I like single family home. And I think that a really big positive that that has is you have so many options to try to sell a single family home. And I don't know if you would agree, you know, you have the, the retail person, you have a, you have an investor and the retail is going to be your biggest market where you don't really have that same market when you go into even, even a duplex, right. you know, once you hit duplex or, or higher, you know, you start chiseling off and making a smaller pool of buyers. So it's an advantage in single family home. Here's the problem. Okay. So if I started and I bought let's say I bought 60 single family homes and I have, I have high goals for myself. So I'd have to have a couple thousand single family homes, but let's just say I got to 60 and I'm like, this isn't for me. You know, I'm right. we're having to go all over the place. Management's going to have to go all over the place and it's not effective. So, okay, well let's put that into a multifamily. You know how hard it's going to be to sell 60 single family homes for a good price. Yeah. I mean, I, to me, it blew my mind trying to think about how I was going to scale those that single family business, you know, on up. The big difference with single family versus multifamily is that the multifamily isn't as dependent on the economy. You know, so these single family homes, you know, my first flip I bought for 170 and during the height of the market 2006 2007 it sold for 330. So that's the other thing there is if you buy all those single families like you're talking about and you need to liquidate, you need some cash or you, you have an opportunity to buy something else. If the timing isn't right, you have to wait longer and it's, it's just a more volatile market. And, and it's, it's, so it's higher risk. 
Yeah. It, it, once you hit that that five plus units, you really get into you're buying a business. Sure. And since I'm, I have a business background, it makes more sense to me. You know, if you think about it, imagine going to a banker and saying, hey, I want to buy these 60 single family homes mm-hmm. compared to, hey, I want to buy this one building that's 60 units. Yep. I mean, what to what logically makes more sense to that banker in, in doing that? I think that you're going to find more bankers that would rather rent on that 160 unit compared to 60 single family homes. And maybe I'm wrong and maybe it's the simplicity in my head of it. But no, it, it just to me, it makes sense that, you know, we're we're buying businesses that banks love, that agency debt loves. Right. And, I mean, that's to me the terms that agency debt puts on these large multifamily properties speaks volumes to how secure these investments are. Yep. You know, they're offering non-recourse. They're offering 30-year amortization. They're, at, they're offering years with no, just interest. Yep, interesting. So, yeah, this is, I mean, just imagine that. I, I mean, bankers are some of the most strict people that I think Risk anyone deals with. Yeah. So for the fact that someone's willing to loan on that on under those terms, that should let you know how secure these investments are. Yeah, that's huge. And and two more I'd add two more points to that. They the non-recourse means they don't care about as much about your personal ability to pay the loan. They're caring about the property. So their the qualification is based on the income of the property, not your ability to pay the mortgage of that house. And that's where people really got killed in the market is they had all these single family homes in 2007, 2008, two, three homes in their name. And all of a sudden a renter moves out or the economy struggles and they can't pay those four mortgages because there's no economies of scale. They didn't have the savings. Well, your 60 unit example, or even a 30 unit, a 20 unit, it's based on the rents that it can get. And, you know, typically during a downturn, bankers know that, that those units can pay for themselves. Of course, there's a few yeah. people paying too much for those properties. That might not be the case <laughs> during the next downturn, you know, from what I see. But, but the other thing is the appraisals based on the income. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you're not waiting for the housing market to go up and, and go insanely high to be able to make make a good return on your investment. You simply manage it well. You have provide a good environment for renters. Rents go up or stay high, stay at a good level, and that's the value of your property. Not, you know, China devaluing their current currency, dropping our economy, and you know whatever whatever may happen. You have a lot more control, and it's a lot more stable and and less risk. So I so I love what you're saying there. I'm kind of curious though. You, you were around during the crash. You saw people struggle during the crash. Now that you're buying assets, what mistakes do you think people are making right now other than buying a bunch of single family homes um, that could get them in trouble during the next recession? I'm really surprised how few people are scared, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I, I think when you aren't scared, I mean, we've, this is, I have to check. This is close to the longest bull run that we've had in real estate. It is. Yeah. That really lulls people into a sense of security where you get this feeling of euphoria that it's just always going to be good. Uh-huh. And where I think most people, 
outside of people just forcing money into deals, you know, they're just like, Hey, I got to put this money in a deal. It's, you know, maybe it's good. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, they aren't really looking at the numbers. They aren't stress testing it to realize what a market could do to a deal. They're they're buying on best case. Not exactly. Exactly. And maybe, maybe they're stress testing it, but it's really not to the effect that they should, you know, they should understand what's going to happen as far as rents and, Typically, you don't see a big cut in rent rates, mm-hmm. but I mean, depending on it's always market dependent. Sure. So, I, I mean, if you aren't figuring the the that you aren't figuring the vacancies, especially when you get up to a a class pr- properties, you know, a lot of those a class tenants will end up going down to B class, and it just yeah. goes down the line. So, if you're investing yeah. in a tight A class deal, that's scary to me. Or, or if you're expecting rents, part of your business model is rents to keep increasing at yeah. the pace and you can't provide the return to your investors or yourself without those increases. That's another mistake people are making. Yeah. And, and since I wasn't in real estate in 07, 08, I can't say for sure, but I think that a lot of people end up getting into really big trouble because they aren't buying the right loan product. Mm-hmm. They aren't They aren't signing up for the right loan product and they're putting themselves in a in a situation where they may not be able to refinance. And even if they're making tons of money, you know, just they have to go buy cargo shorts because they need more pockets to stuff their money in, (laughs) you know, they may be at this point, but they won't be able to refinance this property and they lose it. Yeah. You know, and, and that's going to happen in a downturn, you know, banks shrink up. They don't want to loan on stuff or their criteria is so tight to loan on it, they may not even, the government may not even be allowing them to loan money on certain types of product. Yeah. So absolutely. you may the think you have the best. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe your rates go up to maybe your, maybe cap rates go up and your value goes down and then your loan to values off and you can't refinance. Maybe you need to throw up pony up another 600,000 or yeah. maybe $2 million because of the loan to value to refinance and you can't. So I I think to me, that's the number one thing is making sure that your loans can survive a downturn and you can still make your loan payments. It's huge. Um, Because whether you're making money or not, if you can't renew your loan, it doesn't matter. Oh yeah. So I, I think that people really need to understand what happens with rates and renewing loans refinancing all that stuff they need to understand what's going what can happen in a downturn and i'm not saying it's going to happen in the next downturn i mean i think you and me know there's going to be a downturn there always is you know it goes up and it corrects coming back down so at that time you need to understand what could happen right be be prepared for it Mm -hmm. you know expect the best but plan for the worst and if you aren't planning for the worst, then I, th- I think that's where most people lost a lot in 07, 08. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, this, is, this podcast is how do you recession-proof yourself? And I came to a terrible re- realization probably in the last year that I hadn't probably trained my investors, all my clients, the way I should have. So I started asking them, hey, how, how many months of a mortgage payment do you have set aside? And they all said, you know, what do you mean? Or most of them. And I said, well, 
you know, you're making great cash flow on these fourplexes or these townhomes that you bought from me. What if, what if all of, you know, it, it's not going to happen. What if all of your renters moved out today? Would that, that'd be tough. Oh yeah. That, that'd be terrible. Well, how many months could you make that mortgage payment? Well, one or, or two, or, you know, some of them can, and some of them are very well off, but I started really calling my investors back and saying, why don't you take the cash flow for the next year, put it into a slush fund? You know, most of my clients don't need the cash flow to live on. There's a couple that do, but take some of that cash flow, put it into your bank account, your contingency fund. And that way, when, when the bank's calling and, and, and you have a couple vacancies there, it's, it's a non-issue it's planned for because those are the people, just like you said, they got in big trouble in, in 2007, 2008, cause they couldn't cover their mortgage. And guess what? Mm-hmm. Banks are running a business. If they see a way to make money, unfortunately, they're going to do it. And if you have a lot of equity in your home, in your duplex, your fourplex, they don't necessarily want to manage a fourplex or a 30 unit. But if they can make a great return and you're not paying your mortgage, they're going to take that back. And those were the first people that got uh, repossessed, you know, got there, got evicted and, and the banks took their properties in 2007, 2008. It wasn't the people that had were underwater. People were underwater, got to stay in their homes for two, three years without paying a mortgage. The banks didn't care. They knew they weren't yep. going to make money. My broker, uh, the owner of my company, he had a really nice home, had a ton of equity in it, was almost paid off. He missed a month. You know, the, the company was falling apart and he was trying to save it. He had to go out and get hard money loans because the bank didn't care. He'd never been late. You know, he, he was a business owner. They, they wanted that equity in his home. So if you're a banker and listening to this, sorry. <laughs> But, well, um, and, and to be fair, it's not, lending was, not, yeah, it's not all bankers, Sam. No, no. <laughs> but there are bankers out there that, I mean, do act like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you may think you have the best relationship with your banker and you might, but sometimes their hands are tied. Oh yeah. You know? And usually it's not your banker. It's corporate at, you know, they're not making the decision. It's the people at corporate, the, the people that usually bought the loan from your bank. Okay. You know, like this is not that bad. You know, right. I can do this. <laughs> and, and so it's having that mindset, I think that's, that's been like, help me to get where I'm at and, and keep pushing. And, and really this, the Lord giving me faith to like, you know, he's helping me every step of the way and helping us to be successful. I love that. Don't jump in the, in that Humvee. <laughs> that's right. Don't quit. That's awesome, man. So, so just determination, but let's talk about your wife for a second, because, you know, I was, trying to decide if I was going to work with this new partner of mine. And he was trying to decide if you wanted to work with me. And, and he asked a great question. He said, Hey, Sam, you know, I want to know, tell me about your wife. Is she supportive? And luckily I can say, yes, she's actually right now. I'm about ready to jump on a plane to Albuquerque. She's moving us into one of our rentals tomorrow while our house is being built. So she's moving us on her own. I mean, she's getting movers, but I have a very supportive wife who sees the vision. And I'm very lucky because most of my friends and business partners I've had in the past don't have that at all. So tell me about that and how, how much of a blessing that is for you. Um, I can't speak highly enough and I'll have to tell her to listen to the show, right? But you know, I, I can't speak highly enough and how important it is that your spouse is on board. And so I would not have been able to do this. So, you know, working full time, while yep. also, you know, also doing a daily podcast, I can't tell you, you know, how much work that is alone, much less, mm-hmm. you know, everything else that's going on, but, you know, working full time, doing a daily podcast, and then also, and that's, that's 30 interviews a month, 
you know, so that's, you know, wow. I, there's so much yeah. into that as you, as you're learning. I mean, there's so much into podcasts, so much work behind the scenes that you don't get to see, you know, you don't know about when yeah. you're just listening to it in the gym. But then also we were doing deals. I'm also raising capital, you know, also all the marketing stuff and, and doing due diligence, all these things. And then, you know, we're, we're in our third adoption, you know, we've been through three adoption processes and all that's been happening, you know, a lot at the same time. And, and we've also moved twice in that period as well, which is a, another crazy, you know, things that to add to the mix. And so all that could not happen if she was not supportive. I mean, if you can imagine the stress on a spouse when you're working 80 hours a week and you're, you're moving next weekend and I mean, and you're in an adoption process and, you know, the attorney's calling about the adoption and they need these documents and they need this much money. And, you know, all these things that are happening, if she wasn't supportive, it, it couldn't happen. And right. just like you, when I met my partner, we had those calls with our spouses as well. And, and, you know, it's, it's so important. I couldn't do it. She's running the whole house. People say, how do you do it? And I say, are you kidding? I'm running the business and she does everything else. Yep. <laughs> you know, she does. That's awesome. and, and that's a, yeah, that's another reason I want more time. You know, I want to be able to spend more time with her and the kids and help her more as well. But, but yes, if you're, you got to convince your spouse and they've got, and I appreciate you saying, saying also seeing the vision. Yeah. And so our big why is helping families fund the adoption process, you know, that are wanting to adopt children and can't afford it. And, you know, it's 40 to 60 grand a lot of times to adopt a child and most families mm -hmm. can't afford it. So she's passionate about adoption as well. And she understands that like this business is going to help us to help many families adopt. And, and so, mm -hmm. So she does play a big role in this, even though she's not big into real estate, if that makes, uh, makes any sense. So I couldn't, I couldn't um, say enough about her and her support and, and how important it is. Wow, that's awesome. So you guys want to, part of your why is to help others adopt just like you have. And it is expensive. And it's, it's also, I mean, I've watched my friend's parents do it. I've had friends do it. And it, it's a lot of back and forth. And I just had a friend the week they were supposed to go pick up the baby, the mom decided to keep it. And, and that was heart wrenching and, and very, you know, saddening for them. So I know it's a, a crazy process. So good for you guys. Thank you. You know, and, and, you know, I think the why is, is huge. You know, you can make a lot of money in real estate. If you're just trying to make money though, that's probably not the, the best goal to have. I would say our goal is, to help a lot of people. We want to help the residents in the communities. I, as a real estate agent for the past nine years, I've sold a lot of apartment complexes where the owners were slumlords. They loved saving every penny they possibly could. They would never respond to the tenants. Tenants would have mold or mice, rats, cockroaches. They didn't care. They just wanted to, to bleed that property dry for every nickel and dime they could. And, and I just, I've grown to really despise those type of investors absolutely don't want anything to do with them. And, and I've seen the benefit of a, of a pro, a good owner you know, someone who buys a property rehabs, it actually cares about the people inside. And, and that's actually really exciting to myself and my partners. And I'm sure to you guys as well to provide quality housing where a lot of renters are used to slumlords. Yeah. So yeah, obviously we care about our communities as well. I mean, it is, it's, it's a great benefit to the business, just like you're talking about to be able to help, you know, this many people, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, hundred unit complex, so there's a hundred families potentially there that you're able to, you know, help in some way, you know, or, and there's other, other things you can do, you know, outside of that, but of course to help those families, but yeah, I mean, just providing them a great place to live that's safe and, you know, where they can find some security, you know, and just raise their kids is, is there's a lot of value in that.
Yeah, that's huge. It's huge. You know, usually every Thanksgiving time we pick a family to kind of buy Thanksgiving dinner for someone that's struggling. And, and I'm excited to do that as part of our, you know, when we're owning these apartments and, and excited to do that for our tenants every year and provide something for them. That's a little bit nicer, you know, cause again, money isn't, isn't everything. It sure helps though, when you're making good money and you can help others and give of yourself and your own time. And it sounds like you and your wife, that's one of your big goals is to help others and give back and help more people adopt, which I think is huge. You have to have something more than just money driving you. Yes, I agree completely. If it, and, and, it's, and it's hard to get other people on board with you as well. You know, even investors, you know, would much rather invest with somebody that like has a vision outside of just growing their own wallet. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, you know, they get to play a role in helping these families adopt children. And, you know, and so there's, you know, there's investors that like that, that we're doing something bigger than just, like I said, trying to buy a bigger house for ourselves or whatever, you know, financially. Yep. That's huge. That's so cool. That's really neat. Well, Whitney, I'm, I'm curious, do you have any advice or, you know, the name of this podcast is uh, recession proof real estate investing. So you and I really started paying attention to the market when we started buying in 2009, 10, we took advantage of the recession. Do you have any examples or advice of maybe people that are not doing that or that are going to be in trouble the next time the recession hits? Mm. You know, people who are, uh, there's a few things, but buying for appreciation instead of cash flow, you know, I feel like Mm -hmm. that's pretty risky, you know, or people who uh, don't get correct financing, you know, or that don't have long-term debt, you know, and some things like that in place, you know, because when you're, when you are forced to sell or when the bank forces you to sell, I mean, that's when you're in trouble, right? Yep. You know, yep. and so you need some long-term debt, you know, and even, you know, another thing we do, we do is, is, you know, having a reserve budget. Like, do you have a re- enough reserve budget to, you know, to float the property or to still pay investor returns, you know, even if, you know, let's say, you know, I don't know, it's 20% vacant, you've had to lower the rents, like, have you done some stress testing to see, you know, what happens, what, ha- let's say what happened with this property during the last recession, what were the vacancy? And if that happened today, and we had to lower the rents $100, like, what would happen to us? You know, right. could we, right. can we still keep this thing, you know, or are we going to be forced to sell? And, and that's what we don't want to happen. So having that reserve budget to be able to weather that storm, because there's going to be, you know, as you know, there's in every deal, there's something that like you didn't, like you couldn't have even known to account for. Right. Right. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, no matter how good you get at this business, you learn something every deal and there's going to be something that you, that, that comes up and, and we want to be prepared. Even if we think we've accounted for everything, we understand that we're not perfect and there's going to be something. So we're going to have that reserve budget that's going to say, okay, even in the downturn, you know, if, you know, when there, when it happens, if we, if this happens to the property and the bowler goes out, we can still fix it. Yep. You know, so, and, and so hopefully, you know, we can weather that storm, you know, to get to the other side. And so, you know, people who are, don't have just, oh, there's three things that, you know, don't have a few of those things in place or, you know, are very aggressive or, you know, in their underwriting or, you know, have, you know, really short-term debt. It's just risky. No, that's, that's huge. And I really appreciate that. And, you know, when I got out of building fourplexes with that company last year, I was looking at the numbers, looking at research. And I said, you know, what asset class can I sell as a broker that is less risky and better? And, and so that's the beautiful thing about the economies of scale of large multifamilies. You can have a contingency plan so much, you know, put together so much better 
for a large apartment complex, then you can a whole bunch of homes or a bunch of townhomes or fourplexes spread out all over the valley. And, and so that's actually why I got into syndication and large multifamily is it is so much less risky during the downturn. If you look at the 2007, 8, 9, 10 era, a multifamily didn't do too bad. You know, there's people getting loans and doing stuff they shouldn't and buying for appreciation. So I'm glad you said that as well. But, but yeah, I mean, stuff happens. The, the Dallas deal, we just helped Rod raise money for. A windstorm came along and, and destroyed all the roofs and AC units. It was a million dollars worth of damage. And, and they were able to start immediately on getting it fixed because they had a contingency plan. Of course, uh, plan. Of course, insurance helped pay for it. But you know, then Rod's other deal had a tornado. And, and I know uh, Ben and Ferris, their deal had a serious, serious flood. And and they all had contingency plans. And then, you know, we're, we're dealing with one in Shreveport right now where it's absolutely falling apart. The guy has no money. His, he got the wrong loan on it. So he, he bought it where it didn't really cash flow, but he put an interest-only loan on it or a loan with five years of interest only. And he's at year five. And guess what? He all of a sudden can't pay the mortgage because now he's, he's got a, a larger mortgage payment because the interest-only only's run out and he's in trouble. So I appreciate you said all that. Any, you know, I'm curious, our listeners are, gonna, are all over the country. Where are you looking for deals? And if they find a, a big multifamily deal that they don't know how to take down, or maybe they just want to pass on to you, where are you looking and, and what are you looking for? So personally, we would prefer 150 units or more. We'll look at anything 100 or more units and uh, class B and C, you know, but obviously like, like most in the industry, there has to be some type of way we can add value. You know, we'll mm -hmm. look at even some heavy lifts, you know, some that are in a little worse uh, condition, you know, than maybe most would look at, we'll consider, but, but we prefer, you know, you know, properties that have been self-managed or, you know, that are just under market rents or, you know, uh, maybe they've had them for 15 years or, you know, there's numerous things like that. They can say, okay, there may be some value to be had here. Personally, we're looking in, or we're active in Colorado Springs right now. I mean, I'll be there next weekend and, you know, touring more, more properties and, and, but, you know, we, we like some of those uh, Midwestern markets, you know, like you're in uh, mm -hmm. as well, you know, of course I'm on the East coast, but, but, you know, uh, I mean, it's some good markets out there and in the Southeast, there's numerous markets where we would consider deals, but we're very focused there right now. And we just, we just think there's value in focusing, you know, and, in, and mm -hmm. in being in, and, you know, just heavy in that market right now, there's a couple other markets we're going to there that we're considering and numerous, but uh, we're just, we're analyzing numerous markets right now just to figure out, okay, where, where's our time best spent and, right. and pause, you know, I'm not just open to, any market, you know, in the U S and, and, mm -hmm. you know, or don't, I'm not just going to say, just send me a property and I'll look at it. Well, I'm not going to understand the market at all. If you send right. me something in Columbus, Ohio, like I'm not going to have a clue. Like I wouldn't have any idea, you know, about that market yep. or, you know, and so, I, you know, I'm not going to really be open to that. However, you know, some of the Midwest, obviously some of the Southeast, there's numerous markets I would consider that I would know a lot better, but specifically Colorado Springs, you know, is where we're at and anything a hundred plus or more, preferably 150 with some type of problem that we can fix. That's awesome. So Colorado Springs, awesome location, Air Force Academy is up there and hundred, 150 units at least you'd love more. And and that's the big thing is there has to be upside. So I get that question all the time. What are you guys looking for? Well, we're looking for a problem to fix. Just like you said, we love it when people self-manage. That's how the Dallas deal was. They didn't manage it well. And 
it was an amazing property, 208 doors that had immediate upside. So there has to be some way to raise rents and improve the property. It can't be, you know, already at operating at its fullest potential. Right. Well, Whitney, I really appreciate your time. I'm jumping on a plane to Albuquerque. I'll let you know if I find anything good there. Going to look at some properties. You know, I, I really like your podcast. I listen to it all the time, by the way. But tell us a little bit about the podcast, what your goal is there. And, and just before we finish up, I want to hear what you're doing, who you're interviewing next, and, and maybe what our listeners can get from the podcast. Yeah. So, you know, it's strictly focused on the syndication business. So it's called the Real Estate Syndication Show. It's a daily show. And we're interviewing, you know, uh, I mean, all the experts in this industry or anybody that can provide value to a syndicator. You know, mm-hmm. so I mean, I've had different people that are experts in marketing, you know, maybe their specialty is websites, you know, they're not, re- they're not in real estate at all. But if you're in the syndication business, you better have a website, <laughs> you know, yeah. and yeah. you need to and what needs to be on that website, you know, or how it needs to be. So there's, there's lots of people I've had on that are, you know, that are big name operators, you know, that everybody that's listening would know, you know, to, you know, people that, that are on the back end, you know, that are the asset managers that are, you know, helping find the deals that are, you know, experts in underwriting and all those things that, you know, we got to have somebody that knows all those things, whether it's me or not, you know, I've got to have somebody on my team that understands how to do all these things. And that's who we're having on the show. Um, And so that's, that's what you're going to hear. That's what, you know, it's about 30 minutes long every day. Awesome. And I've listened to it. It's provided massive value for me. And, and I appreciate that you're doing such a great job there. How can our listeners get a hold of you? And, and uh, yeah, you prefer email? Are you on, on Facebook? Where are you at? Yeah, all the, all the above. You can go to lifebridgecapital.com. You can email me, Whitney, at lifebridgecapital.com. You can call or text 540-585-4338. That's my personal cell phone, by the way. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you being on here. Any last words that you'd like to add to the podcast? You know, I appreciate well, like what you said earlier, uh, too, just about like making it happen. Even if that first deal is a, a single family or duplex, like, like, let's go, you know, like, yeah. go educate yourself, find a mentor, um, network, you know, is with as many people as you possibly can in the industry, you know, listening to podcasts, all those things, but let's get out and make it happen. Take action, right? Don't be a lifetime learner. Actually take action. That's right. Awesome. I love it, man. 